We've got all these uh, scandals that are going on and in bankruptcies and the financial crisis and all the fraud that's gone on. At the same time, we've got the lowest level of trust in history. We're seeing and experiencing a renaissance of trust. And it is paradoxical that uh, at the same time we have low trust, we also are experiencing extraordinary examples of high-trust companies, high-trust organizations around the world. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. For those of you who don't know who Greg Link is, he is the co-founder of the former Covey Leadership Center, Covey Link, and the Franklin Covey Global Speed of Trust Practice, a fast-growing global consultancy committed to influencing influencers to grow their careers and their organizations at the speed of trust. Greg Link and business partner Stephen M. R. Covey recently co-authored their new book entitled Smart Trust the defining skill that turns managers into leaders. As co-founder of the Covey Leadership Center, he orchestrated the strategy that led Dr. Stephen R. Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to become one of the two best-selling business books of the 20th century, according to CEO Magazine, selling over 20 million copies in 38 languages. He created the marketing momentum that helped propel Covey Leadership Center from a startup company to a $110 plus million enterprise with offices in 40 countries before merging with Franklin Quest to form Franklin Covey. Greg and his business partner, Stephen M. R. Covey, and the team at the Speed of Trust Practice equip people and organizations to transform toxic relationships teams, and organizational cultures, and to harness high trust as a performance multiplier. Greg Link is a trusted confidant to CEOs and other senior leadership, sharing the secrets to gaining trust and building high-performing teams. We are honored to have him here on Awakened Nation today. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, Brad. I'm so happy to be with you. Your reputation precedes you. Uh, Thank you, Greg, so much. There doesn't seem to be a book out there uh, on this topic. And I have to ask you, you know, as an author, a fellow author, what made you decide to write a book on trust? Well, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, The uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was one of the best-selling uh, business books in history. And and that gave us an opportunity not only to do business in hundred over 100 countries around the, the world, but to uh, meet with and talk to and work with uh, entrepreneurs and executives and high, uh, success, highly successful people all over the world. And one of the things we started to realize is the common thread, they didn't necessarily use trust either in all cases. But as you talk to them, we started to find 13 behaviors that were common to high trust leaders. And we then discovered that, you know, the premise that <clears throat> we trust people based upon their observable behaviors, what they do. We watch what they do, not what they say. We judge ourselves by our good intentions. We judge other by their, others by their observable behaviors. And once we got onto that track and started to ask people, just like you, Brad, and they say, well, gosh, I never thought of it that way. But almost 100% of them, when asked, would attribute their success and sometimes their failure to a tr- the ability to grow trust or 
uh, in the bad cases to lose trust with their customers or other significant stakeholders. So it's a thread that's common to all success. And you're right, not much has been published on it, but we're finding that the thing that makes it so powerful is that it's so common sense. People can validate it from their own experience. And so it really does, putting on that trust lens and being able to see things through that lens really has been a useful uh, way for leaders and managers around the world to improve themselves and to have more influence. Greg, I find this topic fascinating. Uh, and as a former C-level executive of a publicly traded company, I learned like on day one that if you don't show today's younger generations that you embody trust, in other words, you walk the walk and you talk the talk, they will leave the company without notice. Have you, have you noticed that? Yeah, boy, trust is a prerequisite. You know, having the autonomy and being trusted by management, working for organizations that extend trust and give you the latitude is critical to this uh, upcoming generation, I guess I'll call them. Well, honestly, Greg, they're about ready for leadership positions and they need input from mentors like yourself. And I know that trust has been a key for you on your journey. Um, do you want to share the story of the very first time someone extended trust to you? Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a milestone event for me. I grew up and was, you know, I wasn't a, there were no weapons involved, but I was a juvenile delinquent. You know, we'll just say it like it is. I mean, I was a bad kid. And I managed to squeak my way out of high school and uh, uh, get into college. And the first job that I got, I worked my way through college. And the first job that I got, I'd been there about three months. The only job I'd ever had, really, other than digging a sprinkling system pipe, uh, was working in a grocery store. And one day, a few months after I'd been working there, the boss, the manager, the, uh, came up to me and handed me the keys to the store and the combination to the safe. And he said, I got to go in four hours. I need you to lock up and put all the money in the safe. Man, if he had any idea who he was trusting, he would have never <laughs> given me that the responsibility. But it, he was the first adult that ever trusted me, and it, it changed my life. I, I did not want to let the man down. So the, the point of the story is that you know people think trusting is risky, and you could argue that that was risky on his part. But most of the time, people reciprocate trust and 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 it's the it's kind of ironic that if you want to grow trust with people you've got to extend trust to them you've got to give trust first and it is reciprocal and and we all can validate that in our own experience how we interact uh, with different people uh, one of the interesting things we do an exercise uh, where we ask people to think of a person that they have a high trust relationship with and we won't uh, take the time to do that now but but what people think of, they come up with all these great things about what it's like to be with this high-trust person. It's fast, it's safe, it's uh, energizing, all these great uh, descriptors. And then I ask them, what's the one thing you didn't think of when you were thinking of that person that you had a high-trust relationship with? And it's a rhetorical question, but they didn't think of the generation, the age of the person. They didn't think of the gender of the person. They didn't think of the ethnicity of the person. We trust people because they have character and competence. We trust people who do what they say they're going to do. And we develop these relationships, and trust can, can uh, transcend all of the other things that take us apart, whether it's generation or gender. And uh, it really is a key insight for uh, people to learn that, that uh, if you can behave in ways that engender trust, it gets all the other restraining forces out of the way. <laughs> I love that. You also talk about this in the book, the great paradox 
of trust. Uh, now I'm, I'm leaning forward. Could you tell us more about that? Well, yeah, the paradox is, you know, it's counterintuitive that at the time in history when we have the lowest trust and uh, we've got all these uh, scandals that are going on and in bankruptcies and the financial crisis and all the fraud that's gone on, at the same time we've got the lowest level of trust in history, we're seeing and experiencing a renaissance of trust where more companies are realizing, hey, the only way we're going to get this to work, the only way the economy is going to work is we've got to develop and build trust. Uh, in the financial crisis, the banks, uh, you know, the government made money available. They made them liquid. There was money to lend. But for a long time, the banks didn't trust each other, and they wouldn't lend the money. So the financial crisis took way longer than it did because, you know, uh, credit is another word for trust. And uh, it really does uh, make a big difference. So it's, it's an important factor. And it is paradoxical that uh, at the same time we have low trust, we also are experiencing extraordinary examples of high-trust companies, high-trust organizations around the world. You know, Greg, there's, there's a great quote that is floating around the internet right now, and I caught it on LinkedIn, and it goes something like this. The CFO walks into the CEO's office and demands to know, why should I pay for more training when people are just going to leave? And the CEO responds, well, what if we don't train them and they stay? <laughs> and it, yeah, that and is it, really good, Brad. This generation that we call millennials and the up-and-coming Generation Z, they watch their parents lose their pensions, lose their retirement, and watch one financial crisis after another destroy their baby boomer parents' nest egg. You know, they watch them dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and yet they still failed. I have to ask you, Greg, how do we regain and establish trust after all this? Well, the beauty of it is I think that the circumstances we find ourselves in are going to drive it, just like the paradox of the high trust and the low trust uh, world. The, the way to grow trust in a low trust world is to be trustworthy, to be credible, develop your own reputation, control your own destiny. And the title of our book being Smart Trust, we're talking about smart trust. The Russians have a saying, Provorier uh, de Vavorier, which is... Uh, Trust but verify, and I probably butchered the pronunciation <laughs> that I always do. But at any rate, it's trust but verify. And so uh, the younger generation is a little skeptical of these organizations, and so they do want to trust, and, and uh, but they also want to verify. They want to do their due diligence. And what's going to happen? The unique competitive advantage uh, in the economy, uh, as particularly driven by social media and the transparency of information, is the talent is going to gravitate to the companies, as we talked about before, who trust them and extend trust to them and give them the opportunity and the autonomy and follow through on, on what they say. And so the uh, competitors that, that really do operate in a high-trust way uh, are going to attract all the talent. And that's what sets Google and Microsoft, a lot of them apart, is they've gone after the best talent, the best and brightest, and they've trusted them. Google gives uh, their employees a 20% time to work on whatever project they want to work on. On the clock. And Zappos lets uh, managers on the clock take their people out to, to get to know each other and, and uh, mm -hmm. go bowling if they want, whatever. But it, again, it's a function of trust. It's extending and saying, you're important. You're on the team. We're all in this together. It makes a big difference. And those people are going to stay. And that is the unique competitive advantage as it relates mm -hmm. to trust, particularly, Brad, with these younger uh, people yeah. that have seen their parents get burned. I think it's amazing to watch this next generation take command of their careers. For baby boomers, we were taught that a career was uh, it was linear. 
You had to work hard, gain the trust of your bosses, and then hope that someday you get to earn, you hear that, earn the corner office when you are around about 50 years of age. And you definitely weren't allowed to talk to the CEO. Uh, It took time. And that's why advancement was usually based on age and time within the company. That's why almost always the CEO was somebody older or the president was somebody older. Now shift gears to today's generation, and they've been taught that work is more collaborative and they should have access to the CEO. But here's something they've learned through video games and parents and teachers being their confidants. They believe a company is not a hierarchy. They believe it's a peer-to-peer network. And this is why they believe they have the right to just chat with the CEO. Right, right. Many of these younger employees are moving quickly through an organization because their team members give them a peer review and recommend them for a, a promotion, sometimes a lateral promotion. So they move up the corporate ladder much faster every three to six months. And this is all about gaining trust within an organization and amongst your team members. And to a boomer, this makes no sense. Am I correct on this one, Greg? They they performed. They did what they said they were going to do. They have a track record. Yeah. That's really a good insight, Brad. Let's shift gears a bit. Um, as leaders in the field, uh, Greg, what are what are the five things you can share with us so we can become high trust leaders ourselves? It's a great question, and and that's basically what we wrote the book about. I want to premise it with a current event here. Uh, preface it with a current event and uh, say a little uh, about uh, American Airlines. I don't know if you followed the the U.S. Air-American Airlines merger, but Mm -hmm. uh, last spring I uh, was at Thunderbird uh, uh, International Business School, which is the number one rated business school in the world there in Arizona. And the uh, CEO of U.S. Airways, Tom Brady, uh, uh, not Brady, um, anyway, the CEO spoke. He was the keynote. He was the commencement commencement speaker. And he said, I'm going to tell you the secret uh, to business that they didn't teach you at Thunderbird. And he said, Thunderbird's a great business school, but they don't teach it in any of the business school, business schools. And he says, that point is high trust relationships matter. And he said that American Airlines, and by the way, for those that aren't familiar, the combination of these two airlines is forming the largest airline uh, in the world at $11 billion plus dollars. So this is a big deal. And American was in bankruptcy. They did not want to merge. And uh, the, uh, he had the version, it's Parker is his name, uh, that had the vision, the CEO of uh, uh, the other airline uh, uh, in Phoenix there, U.S. Air, had the vision to merge, but American didn't want to do it. And so they had a series of meetings, and he said the entire merger turned on a number of incidents where American Airlines people particularly in the union, ran across people on the U.S. Air team that they'd known from a previous uh, job or project or whatever, and they had a high-trust relationship with. And that was the kernel that turned the entire merger into a possibility and now is, is going to be a fait complete. And so it's these five actions that uh, inform a lot of these uh, stories that, that we read about. And the first one is to believe and trust to have a fundamental belief in trust. And that's what uh, he exhibited uh, by having a uh, propensity to consider that and choose to believe in trust, that he could, even in spite of all the feedback from American airline executives, he he felt that there was a way that they could make this work. And uh, 
having a belief that people are fundamentally trustworthy and worthy of trust and that most people can be trusted and that more importantly a belief that extending trust is a better way to lead an organization that's a key thing you've got to have that fundamental uh, belief to to be willing to take the risk and then the second smart trust action is to start with yourself and it flows out of the first but you have the minute you think the problem's out there that very thought's the problem we have a tendency to blame the circumstances, the economy, the, our coworkers, the customers, whoever we want to blame. But if you take responsibility and look to your own integrity, your own character and competence, and there's the two sides to trust as we define it, that you have both the character, which is the price of entry in this day and age, to have integrity and have good intentions, and then also you've got to balance that, as we've talked about, Brad, with the competence. You've got to do what you say you're going to do, and you've got to pull through. And so having that self-confidence really is a uh, important step forward to uh, uh, for these smart trust leaders. And then the smart trust action number three is to declare your intent. Now, this is one that we've really kind of stumbled upon. We've been talking about transparency and trust and all that for a long time. But what we discovered is that if you want to persuade somebody or influence somebody, the uh, tendency is to go into your pitch, your presentation, and what's the other party doing? They're kind of back on their heels uh, going, you know, where is she going with this? Where is he going with this? Where, where, when's the other shoe going to drop? We're not even listening. So by to take their sword out of their hand, it's counterintuitive, but lay your cards on the table. Assume trust. Declare your intent. Say, here's what I'd like to accomplish. Here's what I'd like to hope to accomplish in this meeting. And this is how they did it in the American Airlines merger. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's what we hope. And then that they may not agree with you, but at least they know where you stand, and they're, they're then able to listen to your argument uh, and then give their counterargument, and it, it makes a whole different experience. The second part of that is assuming assuming positive intent in others. Uh, when I drive a car, if somebody pulls out in front of me, I have the feeling they look me right in the eyes and pulled out in front of me <laughs> deliberately. My sweet wife reminds me that maybe they didn't have that intention. Maybe they didn't see me, uh, or maybe they have a sick child in the car. So assuming positive intent, and Indra Nui, who's the CEO of PepsiCo, uh, said that that's the one thing she learned from her father was that uh, you want to assume positive intent in others, give people the benefit of the doubt, and then trust becomes a performance multiplier. And then fourth, in this fourth, fourth smart trust action, is to do what you say you're going to do. And this is really significant in this day and age of a global economy and uh, you know, talking across generations and, and uh, some of the other contexts that we operate in. We were speaking with the CEO in uh, London, England, and he did business in over 180 countries around the world, which is the majority of company or countries that even have an economy, as you know. <laughs> and at any rate, we asked him if trust was prevalent in all the different places he operated. And he said, yeah, everybody has a high value for trust. They all practice it a little bit differently. But the one thing that he identified that validated our assumption that everybody has in common is you trust people who do what they say they're going to do. And mm. the fastest way to build trust is to make a promise and keep it. And that's the fastest way to break trust, <laughs> is to make a promise and not keep it. So again, behaviors, you behave your way into it. So doing what you say you're going to do, having that reputation, that track record, uh, that personal brand. And then finally, and this is the most leveraged one for organizations and for aspiring people in their careers, that ultimately the art of the deal in business is to gain influence and to expand your 
your organization and your influence by leading out and extending trust, giving people responsibility, taking the risk. We have managers tell us all the time, "Well, gosh, I just don't want to lose control," and they think they're managing, they think they're leading, but meanwhile they're really managing and micromanaging and hovering over people. They're not giving them the benefit of the doubt, and they're not giving them the rope. And again, back to trust but verify. You want to be smart about it. You don't want to set one of your young uh, executives up to lose. You want to give her the benefit of the doubt and give her the chance, but you want to be smart about it. And that's how you develop people. But the propensity, you know, you've got the two extremes. You can be naive and gullible and to be too trusting or you can be too suspicious. And the sweet spot is what we call smart trust, where you have the judgment, where you balance the two. And learning that skill, that one skill, is the defining skill that separates managers from leaders. It gives them the leverage, and it is really uh, a big idea. It produces results. Extending trust increases your capabilities of your people, and lastly, it creates trust by generating reciprocity, as we've talked about before. And uh, the bottom line is leaders go first. We have to be the ones that exemplify these behaviors of high-trust people if we expect people to follow us. So those are the five actions we've tried to boil it down and there's a lot of depth in and around all of them but fundamentally that's the construct that we discovered and again we didn't make it up we this came from our interviews with hundreds of executives and leaders and business people of all generations around the world speaking of the younger generation brad i'm sure you're familiar with tony shea yes. the ceo of zappos you know we asked mm-hmm. him you know he's an online business and he's trusting his customers to have free shipping exchange shoes back and forth, you know, and we asked him, how can you, uh, you know, what do you attribute to success? And he grew a Zappos into a billion-dollar company online in the worst economic decade in history, and he said he attributed it to two things, trusting his customers and trusting his people, his employees. Tony Shea said something profound. He said, your corporate culture is your brand. Boy, isn't that the truth? Yes. I believe managing people in the 20th century was more about babysitting. Like the, the, the boss had to be the parent, but the problem with that is uh, when the parent takes a day off, what do the kids do? You know, that at least that's what people thought. So it was about control and it was about obedience and control from the military. Exactly. Exactly. And leadership today in the 21st century is about being a shepherd help people develop their talents and career trajectory. I see that in John Lasseter at Pixar. When he sees someone that has ambition and skill uh, and they grow over time, he lets them eventually oversee a feature film. Now, it doesn't mean that he just throws them out there all alone. He has a huge amount of support and mentorship and training. And you touched on that in your five steps to smart trust leadership, Greg. It's really about what's a, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, integrity. That's what it's about. Well, yeah, and that's certainly the starting point, and that's the price of entry. But in addition, and that's what has been the common definition of trust over the years is being honest, so to speak. And that's important, and that's the the uh, walking your talk. But again, it's the walking the talk part. It's the other part of it. It's it's doing what you say you're going to do. It's having not only the character but the competence and in, in performing. And yeah. that, uh, at the end of the day, we trust people that have both. And Lassiter, by the way, Brad, is, uh, he's a poster child for what we're talking about. Yes. That example you just gave is ideal. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Yeah, there's a lot of content in, in the book, Smart Trust and, and in Speed of Trust, 
But one of the things we've found uh, that has been particularly useful to people is shattering the myth that once you've broken trust, that's it. You've lost it forever. And in business, with uh, customers and employees, we're all going to make mistakes. And uh, the ability to restore trust is a lost art. Most of us or many of us just give up and just assume, hey, all is lost. She'll never trust me again. Or doggone it, I'm never going to buy from them again. I'm never going to trust them. You know, mm. and so we kind of draw a line in the sand. And so the art of the deal is being able to restore trust. And we believe that trust can be restored. There was a Harvard, Harvard Business Review article by a very reputable academic who said that once trust is lost, all is lost. You, you know, you can't regain it. And we would say that the, the opposite is true that we do acknowledge there are cases that are so egregious that you're never going to trust someone again. Bertie Madoff uh, in the United States, the <laughs> investment guy that defrauded everybody, would have a heck of a time uh, regaining trust. But for the most part, most of the small mistakes and, and even big mistakes that we make, we can restore the trust. And uh, it is something that, that people uh, don't think of. But uh, it is something that's important. And, and this uh, RestoreTrustKit.com, RestoreTrustKit.com, you can get a couple video clips and uh, the copy of the 13 Behaviors and a number of different tools that can uh, teach you how to restore trust when you were at fault, when you lost the trust, and then also uh, how to regain trust with somebody that violated trust with you. How can you forgive them and be smart about it? Again, we're not talking about getting taken advantage here. We're talking about legitimately restoring the trust, uh, sometimes to a level that's even uh, higher than it was before. Uh, and uh, it's, there's a great story in the book that Stephen uh, tells in the uh, Speed of Trust book about uh, his son l- uh, losing his driver's license to his parents for violating their trust. And, and it's a, they now trust him more. And it's a great story. I, I uh, I'll leave it at that and let everybody read it. I, I believe uh, on the RestoreTrust.com, uh, there's an audio clip of him telling that story. So you can go to RestoreTrustKit.com uh, and get that. You know, that could be a handy tool for spouses, too. Yeah, spouses and teenagers are kind of where the rubber meets the road, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, you can yeah, pass yeah, through those yeah. relationships. You can get your trust back. I find that fascinating. You You can get your trust back. Just look at the penny stock billionaire Michael Milken who went to jail for fraud. He now teaches at Harvard. <laughs> that's the, that's probably the greatest comeback in the world. Yeah, it is, it is possible. And again, it's not just to say you're sorry. You've got to uh, try to uh, make restitution where you can. You've got to be uh, very sincere about it. And you've got to take actions over time sometimes to do it, but it is possible. We were talking about this in the green room. You changed the subtitle of the book. What made you and Stephen M. R. Covey do that? It's interesting. You know, it doesn't happen very often, but a lot of people don't realize it. But we changed the subtitle on the Seven Habits book. Uh, the original subtitle of the Seven Habits in 1989 was Restoring the Character Ethic, based upon Covey's uh, study of all the success literature for the bicentennial for the first 200 years of America. And the first 150 years were based on character, and then the next 50 years were based on personality, and he was trying to draw that distinction. Well, what we've discovered since we published the uh, uh, Smart Trust book, uh, certainly the uh, energy and joy and prosperity all still make sense. They're still in it. We didn't take anything out, but we did highlight the fact that, uh, you know, the defining skill, the thing that really separates managers and leaders uh, is the, the skill of extending smart trust. 
And uh, so that's why we changed the uh, subtitle, because we found that companies and people all over the place, that associations and, and companies were overmanaged and underled. That's powerful. I love that you said that. People were overmanaged and underled. And a lot of managers, when you ask them, you know, why don't you extend trust? And they say it's risky. They're afraid they're going to lose control. A lot of them, though, really believe they think they're extending trust, but they're extending fake trust. You know, they're acting as if they're trust their people, but then they micromanage them and hover over them, which is the counterfeit behavior to trust. And they're managing and administrating, thinking they're leading. So we suggest that extending trust is not too risky, uh, that, you know, the greater risk is not trusting enough. Giving people the benefit of the doubt, as we've been talking about, Brad, is the key to getting them to, to be trustworthy and to learn and to grow. And you actually ultimately, as you the quote you gave from Tony Shea, with a high-trust culture, you actually get more control. Peter Drucker yes. said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. For breakfast, yes. It's the best strategy in the world, but if you've got a low-trust culture, uh, you're not going to be able to execute your strategy. Uh, you need that high-trust culture and an engaged uh, group of people to be able to execute even the smartest strategy. So that's why we changed it, because we really felt, just like you had mentioned that not a lot's been published on trust. Uh, as we've gone along these last few years focused on trust, we realized that even with all of the uh, noise that we've been making, uh, people were still kind of missing that boat, that, that that distinction between management. And management's important, by the way. That's the important thing. I mean, a venture capitalist is going to make sure you have a good management team. But a lot of times in companies and startups, it's the passionate vision of the leader it's extending trust and get, bringing people around him or her that are more talented than they are that is the art of the deal. And so mm -hmm. this whole idea of uh, uh, extending trust we felt was kind of uh, lost and that it is the number one thing, as we mentioned when we say that it's the fifth action, extending trust to others. Right. So that's why we changed it. And uh, uh, it's you know, works out well. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, good response to it. Even though we didn't add uh, anything to the book or take anything out, it just kind of shifted the focus for people to what we felt was the most important uh, emphasis. We were talking about this in the green room before we started the show, but the t the subtitle of any book is really the meat and potatoes of what the book is about. And for my own subtitle on liquid leadership, from Woodstock to Wikipedia, that's what draws people in. I'll tell you what, Woodstock to Wikipedia, you got my attention. <laughs> well, it was like I'm a Woodstock uh, generation. I'm, exactly. Uh, I think it's positive. I really do. I think this this transparency, this instant uh, accountability. I mean, you know, the, everything's based on word of mouth. And, and back with Seven Habits, yeah. we didn't have the internet. We didn't have anything, but right. it grew by word of mouth. And now, what the social media does for us is it expands word of mouth which can be good if you're good, and it can hold you accountable if you're trying to cheat. You can't sweep things under the carpet like they used to be able to do in the 60s and 70s in business. In a results-only work environment, the slackers are weeded out really quickly. Right. Because they stand out. I mean, they stand out like a sore thumb. Right. While everyone is working hard and contributing, these people are usually barking orders, but not really contributing to the team. Yeah, and it's a really healthy uh, situation, I think, not only uh, in individual organizations, but in the economy at large. Oh, I agree. I don't think that uh, we're going to tolerate a lot of the things we've been beguiled by in the past. Now, you've had the honor of working with two Stephen Coveys. <laughs> what was it like to work with Dr. Stephen Covey and then his son, Stephen M.R. Covey? I'll tell you, the Covey gene pool 
it's been an honor to to learn uh, about and and watch Dr. Covey. Uh, he had eight kid, nine kids, and all these kids. As I was working with him in the early '80s, he called home every night. He called his mother when she was still alive. He watched his talk like nobody I've ever seen wow. in my life. And as a result, working with uh, all four of his sons, and I know his daughters, but uh, three of his sons still work uh, at Covey uh, uh, Franklin Covey. Anyway, we we just they. It's not nepotism. You know, that's one of the ultimate uh, breaches of trust. I mean, think people are getting promoted just because their dad uh, is the founder <laughs> of the company. Well, right. I'll tell you, that was about as far from the truth. Poor Stephen M. R. Covey, who's his oldest son, uh, when he joined the company, started out as a telephone solicitor and a salesman and then a sales manager and then, you know, on and on. I mean, he worked his way all the way up, as all of them did. And it has been really remarkable to see the consistency of these principles applied in a family setting that bore such irrefutable uh, proof. Uh, every one of the kids uh, has been extraordinary in integrity and competence in their chosen fields. Uh, and those that have worked with us at the Covey Leadership Center have, like I say, earned their stripes, so to speak. But they're all, Stephen M. R. Covey is, uh, I mean, you know, the apple does not fall far from the tree. And they were raised in this environment and held accountable from a young age. And Dr. Covey used to say, in many respects, his kids, were uh, better than he was because <laughs> he had to learn by uh, trial and error, and he, he was able to, <laughs> to teach them a little bit more explicitly. One of the times for a for a family night with a family, he took them to uh, a high-rise uh, building that was under construction, uh, and up on the girders and the beams and the wind, and he was showing the kids the plans and you know the whole idea of habit two: begin with the end in mind. You have to first write the plans and then you build the building. So he was constantly teaching these principles, and that's what ultimately became the seven habits were a lot of the principles he was trying to pass along to his kids and to his students at the university. But the, the one thing I, I walk away with is just the tremendous, because, we, you know, because I was with Dr. Covey for those 25 years mm -hmm. all the time, I was privileged to meet heads of state with him and other uh, authors and CEOs, et cetera. And I'll tell you what, those that really walk their talk, are few and far between. A lot of them are good at writing a good memo or a good speech, but those that really live it are really on the short list, and Stephen was one of them. Oh, wow. It was an honor. How did you start working with them? Basically, like I uh, uh, said early on in my career, I uh, was kind of an unconventional entrepreneurial type, and, and uh, uh, Stephen Sr., when he was thinking of writing The Seven Habits, uh, asked Tom Peters in Kenny Blanchard, the one-minute manager, who were wow. the best-selling business books in the early 80s, what they would do differently if they had a chance. And they both told him that don't count on your publisher for much. You've got to get your own inside person. <laughs> and uh, Ken Blanchard, uh, I lived in San Diego at the time, so I had the honor of knowing Ken Blanchard and Dennis Waitley and Tony Robbins and a lot of the other people, Brian Tracy, that all lived in San Diego. So at any rate, I was fortunate enough that Ken uh, uh, passed my name along to Stephen. And it's funny because when he first interviewed me, uh, I told him I didn't want to go to work for him because uh, I was from Colorado. I'd done my quota of snow. I'd moved to San Diego deliberately. And, uh, you know, anyway, so my, my wife... Uh, uh, called him up. She was at dinner with us, and she said, you know, Stephen, I know Greg's not going to go to work for you, but I'd like to learn how to teach the seven habits to the community here in San Diego. So Stephen invited my stay-at-home wife 
to Sundance uh, Ski Area, where he did his executive training for uh, corporate America. And so she was in a class with 30 or 40 other uh, executive trainers in corporate America, became the Stephen's star pupil, if you will, and he wow. took her aside and said, I predict your husband's going to go to work for me. So uh, she came back to San Diego, and his next speech there, I waited till he was done with his speech. I went up backstage, and I said, where do you get off? What part of no do you not understand? And I'll tell you what, I got the best lecture in five minutes on carrying your own weather with you and that you are your uh, your uh, you are your values, not your moods, and mission is more important than money. Uh, and I went to work for him within 30 days. We actually came up with what he called a third alternative, where I stayed in San Diego for the first couple of years and flew back and forth to Sundance to the executive training. So, but anyway, it was it was a great uh, opportunity, and I I have, owe it all to my wife for having the vision that I didn't seem to have at the moment. It's funny too because I had listened to the very first. Uh, Three, there was a three cassette tape version of the Seven Habits that was published in uh, the mid '80s before he published the book, and I listened to that when we drove back and forth from San Diego to Phoenix to visit my parents, and I just loved it. I loved his material. I, yeah. Uh, at any rate, we're we're all uh, at the, the beginning of our careers, not as not as savvy as we end up at the end. <laughs> Hindsight 2020, right? Hey, ladies and gentlemen, pick up the book at Amazon, Smart Trust, the defining skill that turns managers into leaders. Uh, it's a great read. Well, yeah. hey, and that, I want to give credit where credit's due. Sandra Covey, Stephen Sr.'s wife, the mother mm-hmm. of all these Covey uh, people I'm talking about, she was a force to reckon with in her own right, and she was the behind-the-scenes that kept the glue while Stephen traveled around the world. She kept wow. the, the glue together of the family, and so it was a team effort, and he relied on her. She was always telling him, say, Stephen, don't make it so complicated. Just tell him. <laughs> make it simple. Make it simple. Don't tell him all that stuff. There you go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I see that your workshops happen all over the world. You have one coming up in Toronto and Canada soon. Yeah, yeah, we operate in over a hundred companies at Franklin Covey now. Um, most of the international ones are with uh, uh, affiliate partners. Uh, we have a direct operation in in uh, Canada and England and Australia and Japan and Brazil. Most of the others we deal with partners, but and we have been for twenty years. And so uh, our international uh, capability rivals our domestic capability. So wherever we are in the world. You can get the same expertise. Whether you're a manager, a spouse, a parent, uh, a leader, or a salesperson, you need this book. Yeah, it's it's uh, available at uh, Indigo and uh, Chapters and uh, Coles up in Canada, and, yeah. and also BarnesandNoble.com mm-hmm. and Amazon.com, of course, and and most airport bookstores have it. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, that's RestoreTrustKit.com. We'll give them links to uh, a number of different uh, uh, support, free free things they can do to to uh, learn more about it, and uh, it'll connect them to uh, speedoftrust.com where they can, if they happen to have a company, where they can learn more. But basically, the books are the the uh, uh, all the everything we know we've put in the book. So <laughs> it's nice. uh, uh, we sometimes lose sight of of how much value there is in rereading these books. It's the 25th anniversary of Seven Habits, and Jim Collins wrote the foreword for the 25th anniversary edition. And wow. uh, it's really, you've got to read it. It's really remarkable. 
but uh, at any rate, uh, they can get in touch with us and, and uh, uh, get, the, get the books, and then there'll be the website where they can get uh, more help if they're interested. Oh, and Greg, thank you so much for your time today. Um, continue the great work you're doing. If we can restore trust, this world would be a better place. Yeah, well said. Thank you, Brad. Um, pick up a copy of Smart Trust, a defining skill that turns managers into leaders. Um, thank you, Greg, so much. It's been a privilege. All right, my friends, uh, this has been another great episode of Awakened Nation. We're about to start season three, and I've been blown away. We're really, we're um, really getting some amazing guests on the show. Uh, upcoming here in season three, we have Susan Bennett scheduled. She is the original voice of Siri. Dr. Lise DeGeer, who wrote Flashback Girl, and she shares her story of being burned over 65% of her body. YouTube sensation and green plumber Roger Wakefield will be joining us, along with New York Times bestseller Panache Desai and former Boston Red Sox Major League Baseball player, first baseman Shay Hillenbrand. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and all the other podcast platforms like Spotify, Rumble, uh, we're on Apple as well as Google. We're also on Amazon Prime as well as Audible. So take care, everybody, and see you on the next episode of Awakened Nation. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.